before we open this text this morning, let us pray. Lord, we ask that this morning, uh, as we study your word, as we hear the beautiful truths of the message of the gospel, uh, Lord, for those who already know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that we would uh, still listen very intently at the heart of the gospel. Uh, It is the very gospel that not only saves us from the wrath of God and forgiveness of sin, but it is the same gospel that gives us desire and power to grow in who we already are in Christ, and it is the very gospel that has secured our eternity in heaven with you. Lord, for those who may never have heard the message of the cross, or those who have heard it but never responded, Lord, we pray that this morning, this Easter morning, Lord, that hearts would be changed, and the name above all names would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. As we study God's word this morning, again, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, looking at verses uh, 3 through 11. If you're, again, joining with us on campus and you don't have a copy of God's word, again, there's Bibles uh, underneath the, your seat or in the seat in front of you, and I encourage you to uh, open up to page 1063. 1063, the, uh, this particular letter to the churches in Corinth was written, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and given to the Apostle Paul, Uh, roughly uh, 20 to 25 years after uh, Jesus's death and resurrection uh, from the grave. And so this is a a really a a fresh letter, if you will. Uh, And so this is very important content about what Paul is giving to the church and what he's giving to us 2,000 years later. And what I love about the scripture is it always puts the focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. From the very beginning verses found in the book of Genesis to the very closing verses in the book of Revelation, everything is pointing to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's the message of the gospel that you and I need today. And so that is the message that we want to hear, not only today, but each and every day. We want to uh, have the gospel message marinate in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds all the time. And so when the Apostle Paul writes in verse 3 of chapter 15, he says these words, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. And so the Apostle Paul says, "I I am sharing with you a message that hasn't come from me. It's come from someone else. It's come from the Lord. It is a message that has changed my life. I have received it too. And when we think about the message of the gospel, there are so many different aspects of the gospel that are extremely important. Aspects of the gospel that need to be discussed and and need to be uh, looked at and, and, and brought about and how they impact our lives. But the Apostle Paul says something important. He says, I give to you that which is most important. In other words, there is a lot that needs to be discussed and should be discussed. But there are things that are the main thing that need to be kept the main thing. And so it's important for us as a church family to keep the main thing the main thing, not only in our lives as individuals, but in our lives as the body of Christ collectively. And so what are those main things that the Apostle Paul addresses in these verses this morning? Where there's three aspects that I want us to really just dive into this morning. The first is Jesus' death. So when you want to think about the the important uh, contents of the gospel, what are they? The first is that of Jesus' death. The scripture says, uh, towards the end of verse 3, it says this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. The very heart of the gospel isn't Jesus died because of our sins. It's Jesus died for our sins. That is a specific difference that we need to embrace. So it's not just 
he died because of our sins. It's he died for our sins. We are the ones that have disobeyed. We are the ones that have rebelled. We are the ones who, in many ways, have looked at God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the perfect one, and shaken our fists and said, no, we will do it our own way. But God always had a plan to fix what we broke. Jesus' death on the cross is according to God's plan revealed to us in the scripture. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, unfolds for us this incredible message of the gospel through the death of Jesus Christ. He says, Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the Lord's will to put your sin debt and my sin debt on the back of Jesus Christ. That was the plan all along. Jesus absorbing the full wrath of God on our behalf. The penalty is death. Jesus stood in our place. He is the perfect substitute. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for the sins, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The bad news in this verse is what? That we're unrighteous. Right? There, there is nothing we can do to be right with God. We have no hope in ourselves. But the good news that is found in this scripture is what? That, that Jesus is the righteous one. That, that is the good news. That Jesus stood in our place. And the reason why he stood in our place, the reason why the, the nails were thrust through his hands and the, the, the spear thrust into his side, the reason those occurred are why? That, we, that he might bring us to God. At the very heart of the gospel is relationship. God desires a relationship with you. He desires a relationship with me. And what separates us from that relationship is our sin. We owe a debt we cannot pay. And yet Jesus stands in our place. The Apostle Paul goes on to say that he was buried. So what proof that we have that Jesus actually died on the cross, right? The scripture says that, that he was buried. Jesus died on the cross and the proof is that burial. This is important because when you think about Pontius Pilate, the, the, one of the Roman governors at the time, he, he had to make absolutely sure that Jesus was dead. That, that was the, the, the communication that was given to the soldiers. Make sure this one specifically is dead. And the scripture says in Matthew 27, verse uh, 57 through 60, it says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then this is important. The scripture says, Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out in the rock, and he rolled a great stone in the entrance of the tomb and went away. That, that phrase there that says that Pilate ordered it to, to be given to him, uh, according to the Gospel of Mark, Mark 15.44, it says that it was only given to him after he received confirmation back that Jesus was actually dead. Again, the spear thrust into his side. Why? To ensure that there was absolutely no more life in the body of Jesus Christ. So we realize that Jesus' death is not only a historical fact, but it is a spiritual blessing to many. 
The scripture says in Colossians 2, verse 13 through 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. On the cross, Jesus erased our sin debt. On the cross, Jesus conquers our enemies. The cross... When Jesus died on the cross, it is victory, not defeat, right? That's important. Satan and his demons no longer have a hold on us. Sin no longer has a hold on us. Death itself no longer has a hold on us. This means we no longer have to live in fear. No longer have to live in fear, wondering if what we're doing is good enough, right? That is the weight that many of us carry, even as Christians. We got to do more. There has to be more that we have to do. And Jesus puts an end to all of that by defeating every enemy that we have. Sin, death, and Satan. We are no longer condemned. The debt record that we owe, the sin that we owe, the penalty that is owed to us is put on him. Past, present, and future, it has been erased. Praise be to God. Jesus died for me, and Jesus died for you. The second core component that Paul addresses here is not only the fact that Jesus died, but Jesus resurrected. So we learn about Jesus' resurrection. Not only is the death of Jesus is important, but also the resurrection of Jesus is important. That's what we're celebrating today. Verse 4, the second part of verse 4, it says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Again, it's accordant to the scripture. It was God's divine plan that Jesus would not only die on a cross, but on the third day he would raise from the grave. We see this in the Old Testament. There's glimmers of this all throughout the Old Testament. One of the best ones that I can think of is Job. In Job 19, remember what Job says? He says, oh, my Redeemer, my Redeemer lives, right? And when we look at the New Testament, one of the clearest declarations of the resurrection of Jesus Christ comes from Jesus himself before he died. In John 10, 18, it says, no one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down on my accord, and I have authority to, to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, the charge I have received from my Father. You see, Jesus' resurrection is so critical that without it, there is no gospel. There is no hope. So the resurrection is central to our faith in Christ. This brings to mind the events that, that occurred on Saturday. Think about Saturday for just a moment. Now, we, we know Good Friday, Friday, right? We know Easter Sunday today, but there's some specific important events that happen on Saturday. Again, think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about uh, the fact that Jesus said, I have the authority to lay down my life, and I have the authority to rise it again, right? So what happens on Saturday? Well, we get a glimpse of what happened on Saturday in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62. Uh, the scripture says the next day, that would be Saturday, that is after the day of preparation, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how the imposter, the imposter is Jesus, right? He's the fraud. He's the one that's telling a lie. He's not the king of the Jews, right? That was why he was put to death, by the way, right? That was his uh, crime, that he was king of the Jews, right? So the scripture says, sir, we remember how the imposter, Jesus said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure. That's an important phrase. Until the, the third day, least his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. You thought the fact that Jesus claims to be the king of the Jews was bad? If we can't find the body, that's even worse, right? Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. 
When you read this passage, what jumps out at us is that phrase from Pilate, go make it as as secure as you can. Now we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus' body is going to be raised from the tomb, right? And it's as if Matthew's being a little sarcastic here. You can do all that you want to do, but it's not going to stop Jesus from raising from the dead. Think about it. Think about how secure they were making. It already had a tomb rolled in front, or a stone rolled in front of the tomb, right? That had already happened. Now think about this stone, this massive stone, this immovable object. Nothing could move it. But then in the back of their minds, Jesus said, on the third day, I'll rise again. There's doubt. Is it secure enough? I know. We'll seal it. We'll seal it. Now, the seal would have been wax that would have been in, uh, expressing the authority of the governor, Pilate, saying that nobody could break that seal unless the governor did it or the governor appointed someone to do it. So they have this seal, this, this mark of authority that nobody's going to touch this tomb. But yet again, doubt creeps in. Jesus said, on the third day, I will rise again. Let's make it even more secure than the than the massive stone and the the seal that marked the authority of the day. Let's put a guard in front of the tomb. That'll make it more secure. Now, when we think about this guard in front of the tomb, we we can't be thinking about, like, Paul Blart, Malkoff, right? That's not what we're talking about. It's more like a Rambo in my mind, right? This, This massive guy that's standing there that nobody wants to mess with. Oh, yes, yes, that's got to stop Jesus. The body of Jesus being stolen, right? All of that, trying to do what? Secure, secure the body of Jesus so that nobody can say that he rose from the grave. Yet, no matter how hard they tried, no matter what they did, nothing would stop the fact that Jesus' body would be raised from the tomb. It was God's sovereign plan for Jesus to rise from the grave. And get this, the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that we could look in and see that he had risen from the dead. He's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And everything that separates us from the love of God, all of our sins, all of our schemes, all of our self-righteous deeds, all of our methods and ways of somehow securing our own goodness before him has been cut down. Why? Because Jesus has risen from the grave. It is a testimony from God himself that I accept the final sacrifice God proves his love for you and I because he rose Jesus from the grave. Now, how do we know the resurrection happened, right? How do we know that happened? Well, the resurrection of Jesus went public, right? That's what we see beginning in verse 5. The scripture says, and he appeared to to Cephas. Cephas would have been Peter. Now, think about Peter for just a moment. Peter wasn't the first person to see the resurrected Christ, but he was one of the first people. Now, now, remember the last time Peter had an encounter with Jesus before Jesus died on the cross? Remember, it was Peter himself who denied Jesus three times. And when Jesus died on the cross, can you imagine the burden and the brokenness and the weight on Peter's heart, knowing that he, he had a part of that? Can you imagine what those days look like? That, that guilt and that shame And yet Jesus, because of a love towards his fellow brother, what does he do? He appears to him. And he restores Peter. Puts Peter back in ministry, if you will. 
Peter was one of the most influential people in the early church. Why? Because Jesus rose from the grave. But then the scripture says, then to the 12. Now the 12 are referring to the, the 12 main apostles. And, and my favorite's got to be Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? I, I, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose from the grave until I see his scars. And not just see his scars, but I can actually put my finger in the holes of where those nails went. And guess what happened? Jesus showed himself to him, and, and Thomas was able to do what? To not only see, but to touch. And what did he say after that? Lord, my God. Then verse 6, the scripture says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So again, be reminded that th this uh, letter was written roughly 20, 25 years later after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. And so uh, some of those believers who saw the resurrection 20, 25 years earlier have, have passed away, but many are still here. Or many are still there. And so the, the reference to the 500 more than likely would have been on the hill of Galilee where uh, Jesus gathered his disciples and that's when the great commission was given. They saw the resurrected Lord. Then the scripture says, then he appeared to James. James more than likely is the half-brother of Jesus, the one who lived in the same household, right? The one who did not believe. The one, according to scripture, did everything he could to, to stop Jesus from doing ministry. And then Jesus dies, he rises from the grave, Jesus reveals himself to his half-brother James again, and what does James do? James receives the Lord as his Savior. Then, to all the apostles, we know in Acts chapter 1, before the Holy Spirit came in uh, verse 8, uh, the scripture says that Jesus appeared to, to many apostles and what was he doing? He was, for 40 days, he was teaching them about the kingdom of God, right? And so all of these public experiences of the risen Savior, but it's not just public. Paul says, I have a personal testimony on how I saw Jesus, the resurrected one. Verse 8, the scripture says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now that phrase, untimely born, is a very graphic phrase. It, it refers to like an aborted fetus or uh, a baby that is so, preme uh, so premature in birth that there's no hope for survival. In other words, Paul says, I, I was dead. And I had no hope whatsoever in myself on seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving salvation from him. I had no hope whatsoever. Paul says, when you think about the least likely person to come to faith in Christ, it is me. I am the chief of sinners. I am the lowest of the lows. I'm the one who had the hardest of hearts. The scripture says in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. The very church that Jesus laid down his life for is the very church that Paul is trying to kill off. Man, this is great hope for all of us today. That even the hardest of hearts can be changed by the message of the gospel. And that leads us to the third aspect. Not only Jesus' death, not only Jesus' resurrection, but my new life in Christ. My new life in Christ. This verse tells us of the reach of God's grace. No one's past is so broken, so marred that you cannot be saved and why? Because Paul's own testimony, he says, beginning of verse 10, but by the grace of God, and that's what it is, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, meaning that, that it was not meaningless. It did something in my life. It changed me from the inside out. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, it wasn't my own power, it wasn't my own strength, but the grace of God that was with me. Every aspect of salvation, from the forgiveness of sin, to growing in Christ, to spending eternity with Jesus, is all an act of God's grace. We are so undeserving, but yet God has lavished on us amazing grace. Grace, the undeserved, unmerited, unconditional love of God. When, when we were at our worst, God gives us his best in his son, Jesus Christ. God, being rich in mercy with a great love, has loved us. And the person, the people that we used to be, we no longer are. Why? because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 6, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that lives in you today as a brother and sister in Christ. If you are a follower of Christ today, you have a choice every day on what you're going to do. Are you going to live for the sins of the flesh or are you going to live for the glory of God? So every day, you have to make up your mind. Today, right now, am I going to live for you? Is my attitude going to be geared towards you? Are my words going to be geared towards you? The way that I conduct my business, the way that I deal with people in relationship, if it be marriage or friendship or whatever it is, even the people that are my enemy, if you will. God has given me power not to be sinful towards them. Why? Because we have the risen Savior in our life. It's an act of grace. Verse 8 of Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift. It is a precious gift from God, not as a result of work, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for God's work, or for good works, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. Listen, you may not see it, but your life is a masterpiece in God's hands. And he will complete what he started. You are one of a kind in his heart and in his mind. And though we have definitely core components that are similar, there are specific things that God has created you and designed you and purposed you to do. And God has given you a new life so that you can fulfill those things for his glory in our good. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I have a new nature. That means I have been given a new heart, new desires, new loves. Why? Because of the grace of God. This is the heart of the gospel, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and my new life in Christ. There is no greater message than that. That's why Paul says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 15, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Listen, it doesn't matter if it's me behind a pulpit teaching God's word, the gospel, or if it's you having a conversation with somebody at a coffee shop. The power is not from the presenter. The power is in the message, right? It's the message of the gospel that has the power to save. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Our only hope our only hope is found in the gospel. There's only one way to receive forgiveness of sin, and that is through the cross. And there's only one way to receive new life, and that is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's given to everyone. It's every, available to everyone who believes. Now that embarks an important question, and this is where we're going to close our message this morning. What does it mean to believe? I mean, that's an important question, right? What does it mean to believe? Well, I'll illustrate 
the answer to that uh, by showing you and giving you uh, a little bit of backstory on a man by the name of Charles Blunden. Charles Blunden, I'll show a picture of him. He was born in the 1800s, 1820s. Uh, he was born in France. Uh, he was a performer. Now, Charles Blunden wasn't his uh, birth name. It was his stage name because his French name was way too hard to say. And so they gave him the name Charles Blunden. Now, Charles Blunden was an acrobat. He was a, he was a performer. And in his 30s, around 35, he, he decided, I mean, you wear an outfit like that, you've got to keep up in your game, right? You, you just can't stay where you're at. So he's like, I've got to do something better, right? There's, I've got to do something the world has never seen before. So in 1855, he got this great idea. I'm going to walk across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. If you've never been to the Niagara Falls, it's a beautiful place. I've, I had the opportunity to go one time when I was in college. We were doing some mission work in Ontario, Canada, and it's a beautiful place. And I have a picture that you can see just how massive it is. And so Charles uh, Blunden said, you know, I'm, I'm going to stretch a rope about two inches thick, over a thousand feet long, that spans the Niagara Falls, that's roughly 200 feet above the water. And I'm going to walk across. I'm going to show the world something they've never seen before. So in uh, 1859, that's exactly what he did. And here's a picture of him. Too bad they didn't have iPhone 13s back then, but that's him walking it. Now think about it for just a moment. That wasn't the only time he did that. Throughout the span of the rest of his life, he did it on multiple occasions. Uh, most estimates say that he did it roughly 300 times. Now, Charles Blunden, because he's still wearing the same type of outfit, he's got to continue to up his game, right? So not only did he do that, what you see there, he's holding this little balance thing. Uh, he, he upped his game. Uh, he not only did that, but he uh, walked across it blindfolded. He walked across it backwards. Uh, he would even go to the middle of it, and he would stand on his head. Uh, he would uh, also put a wheelbarrow across it. And he even cooked an omelet on the middle of it and ate it for breakfast, right? That's pretty amazing. And, and, and thousands of people would come to watch him do this over the course of many years. Thousands upon thousands of people would come. And they would cheer with great excitement until he got on that tightrope. When he got on that tightrope, everybody stopped. In fact, some people were so overcome with fear that they actually passed out. But the moment that Charles Blunden put his feet back on the platform, the crowd would erupt over and over and over again. On one particular day, you know what he did? He took his manager and put him on his back. Can you imagine that piggyback ride, right? Put him on his back and walked him all the way across. Can you imagine? You couldn't hear a pin drop as he was doing it. But the second he hit the platform on the other side with his manager on his back, everybody erupted in great excitement. And Charles Blunden says, do you believe I can do it again? Do you believe I can do it again? And the crowd erupts. Yes, we believe you can do it again. And then he says, who's ready to hop on next? And nobody moved. In a similar way, that's exactly what has happened to many of us, to many of you, when concerning the gospel. You come to an Easter service like this, you hear powerful truths from the scripture. And maybe you believe that Jesus died, and maybe you believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And maybe you're emotionally stirred about the message. But the question is, have you truly believed in him? 
You see, it's, it's one thing to believe from a distance. But the moment Jesus says, you come my way on my terms, or that's it, that begs a question. Where is your faith? Where is your trust? Where is your hope? Where is your future? If it's not on the death, resurrection, and new life in Christ, you have no hope. So I ask the question again. Do you truly believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Oh, we are so undeserving. And there's nothing we can do to add to it, and there's absolutely nothing we can take away from it. The question is, are you willing to jump on his back, if you will, and allow him to carry you, not, not just in the good times, but also in the bad times? Why? Because your sin has been forgiven. Your future is secure. And your finished hope, your living hope, is in him.